Welcome to the Storytellers Live podcast, where everyday women share stories of God's love. I'm Robin, and I'm here with Katie and Lindy. And today we are bringing you our final news story of the summer. That's right, Robin, and we're so excited that it came from a live gathering in our community group in Tupelo, Mississippi. We have Liz, who shares just a journey that she went through, addiction, sobriety, and then an unexpected diagnosis of breast cancer. But, you know, one thing that I just took away from her story is you say yes to God, no matter where he is taking you. You're going to love her story. Here she is. Hey, I'm Liz. I'm here to tell you my story, and uh, I guess it's kind of started my experience in storytelling. Well, I kind of been telling stories for a while, but they called me, oh, I don't know, maybe like two months ago. Um, Alex from, he's a pastor at the Orchard Oxford. And he says, hey, Liz, we really want you to share your story. And for a second, I was like, what story? Which story? Because my story for several years has been my recovery story. I forget that I have um, a new story to tell now, which is the one about breast cancer. And in fact, the last one I met with the girls a couple of weeks ago, I don't even think we got to breast cancer, did we? We we were talking too much about all the other stories because, I mean, you just can't make some of this stuff up. But (laughs) (laughs) we won't be able to cover everything tonight. But what I'm going to start with is just how did I get to know God? And for me... God was always there, even though we weren't going to church regularly when I was a kid. I know that I went to church sometimes. All I really remember was that Mimi would pinch me if I was bad. And I don't know if it was was me or my sister, but one of us would holler, probably Emily, because I was good. And she was bad, normally. (laughs) My brother's here tonight, so. But I I think we would mostly go on holidays. I don't really remember. Remember my parents being there, even for those holidays. I, I assume that maybe they were. I'm not sure, but I still knew God, and there was never a time in my life that I can remember where I didn't know who God was. And I spent a lot of time talking to God, almost like an imaginary friend. And I would take my children's Bible that had pictures and like a storybook with me to school all the time. And some of the kids would make fun of me, but I loved it. I love the stories. That's kind of why we're here, isn't it? Is to to tell the stories and all begin with the stories from the Bible. I know that my mom came in when I was watching. I I don't remember this, but apparently I was watching the 700 Club and she walked into the living room and I was on my knees, like prostrate, like giving my life to the Lord right there in that moment. Maybe that's when it started. I'm not sure. But there was never a time that he wasn't there for me. Around the time that I was 13 is when my mom decided that we would start going to church as a family. I don't remember why that started, but I was fine with it. And I think maybe Mimi had something to do with it because it was confirmation time in the United Methodist Church. And that comes a time in a young man and woman's life where it's time to confirm herself, himself to the church and say, I'm a Christian. And I spent a lot of time in the sanctuary just by myself. Also, don't know why. And I remember the song from the hymn and also from the scripture. Here I am, Lord, send me. And we had this beautiful stained glass in um, St. Luke's, which was my home church in Jackson, Mississippi. And the carpet was like this maroon, dark red. 
dark wooden church, stained glass everywhere, and it was calming for me, and I was standing in the middle of the pews, and I prayed that, here I am, Lord, send me. I didn't know what I was asking for when I was 13, but um, I got it multiple times over, I'll say. Fast forward to when I'm in high school. That was the first time that I remember the Lord speaking to me directly, where I knew that it was something that God was saying specifically to me, and it was overpowering. And I've come to know now that if it makes me uncomfortable in some way, that I can almost guarantee that it's the Lord speaking to me. If it takes me out of my comfort zone, then Jesus got to be behind it. And we were at Lake Genaluska, a camp, and we were in some type of icebreaker group. And there was this girl across the way from me, and the Lord said, you need to go over to her and tell her that she's beautiful and that he sees her. And I was like, I am not doing that. That is really weird. And this girl clearly is beautiful. She knows that she's beautiful. Why do I need to tell her that? But I couldn't get it out of my mind what he told me to do. So I finally decided, well, I'll just go do it because this is going to drive me nuts thinking about this constantly, obsessing over it. So I walked over to her after the icebreaker session was over. And I said, this is going to sound really strange, but the Lord wants me to tell you. I don't think I said the Lord. I think I said God told me that he wants you to know that you're beautiful and that he sees you. Well, she broke down in tears and she did not know that she was beautiful, even though she clearly was. And she had been depressed. And I don't remember all the details of what she said, but I know that she had been thinking about suicide. And she needed to hear those things. And if I wouldn't have answered that, then maybe she wouldn't have heard them. From then on, there have been several times where I've felt God speak directly into my life in an overpowering way. Moving on a couple of years, I'm in college. And the second semester of my senior year, I started to drink heavily. And it seemed normal to me then. That's like what everyone did was go out on a Tuesday night and then like study in the middle of the day so you could go out on Wednesday night. And that turned into Thursday night and then you just kept going. Like I think the only night we might have taken off was Monday night because we had chapter, but most of us would go to out to after that too. We were in a sorority. And I gained a lot of weight that semester, probably from the extra calories I was taking in with alcohol and graduated, moved to Austin, felt the Lord telling me to go to Uganda, so I did that. Came back, felt the Lord telling me to move to San Diego, did that, moved back to Austin, and then moved back to Oxford. And all of this time, I am steadily drinking, uh, like sleeping with a bottle of tequila in the bed, kind of drinking. And uh, that goes on for 10 years, 12 years, and I came back to Oxford. I went to what I call second college because I got one useless degree in psychology. And so I decided I'd get a second useless one in religion. <laughs> but it was awesome. I really loved the classes. I had plans to go to medical school or practice medicine in some capacity. And all the while, every night, I'm going out or worse, drinking at home. And that was kind of the way that I operated was drinking at home alone, because then no one would know exactly how much I was drinking. I was real sneaky, let me tell you. Not really. And I 
Got very depressed at the time. It didn't help that I was using a depressant called alcohol on top of it. And also, I think one of my doctors had prescribed uh, sedatives, so that was not helpful either. And I attempted suicide in 2013. And I planned it out very carefully, made sure that I took some um, blood pressure pills so that my blood pressure would bottom out, sedatives, uppers, downers, everything under the sun that I had. And I got, I won a 72 hour hold in the mental facility in Batesville for that attempt. And I was really angry because they labeled me as an abuser of drugs and alcohol. So they made me attend like the drugs and alcohol class. And I was like, I do not need to be in here. I do not have a problem with drugs and alcohol. I'm just depressed. I think they knew a little bit more than I did, but clearly I knew everything. I paid no attention in that class because it did not apply to me. And I didn't really pay attention to everything else. It didn't take me very long to realize that maybe I wasn't quite as crazy as I thought I was. Um, I don't know if anyone else has ever been in the lockup there at a place like that before, but you know, there was a guy that thought he was a velociraptor and he would sneak into our room and I was like, maybe I'm okay. I think it's time for me to go home now. And there was this one session with a therapist that was driving me crazy because again, I knew everything better than everyone else with my useless psychology degree. And the room was just chaotic because everyone's like half the patients are talking to themselves. The other one's a velociraptor in the corner. This girl's eating her hair. And I'm just trying to pay attention because I like to be a good student, but I couldn't because this lady didn't have control of the room. And for some reason, I zoned in on one thing that she said, which was an experience that she had had on a 72 hour hold previously in her life. And someone told her that she wasn't depressed because she was sad. She was depressed because she was angry. And that was new information to me because I always thought I was depressed. And I had been suffering from depression since I was young. Maybe 12, 13 is when it began for me. I never knew it was because I was angry. I just thought it was because I was sad. But see, as women, we're taught to hide our anger. We don't show our anger to other people. It's not, it's not, you know, becoming for a young lady to be angry, to lose her temper, even for men, really. We just say, mm -hmm, yes, ma'am, we're always polite. I never thought it was okay to be angry. And for the first time, I was given permission to be angry. And I started making what I called then my anger list. And I wrote down the people and the things that I was angry at which later I came to know was actually a very useful tool in the 12 steps, very similar to a four step. And, but it helped me and that began my healing process for depression. Now I still didn't listen to anything about drugs and alcohol and it took me a whole nother, let's see, three years to begin to listen. In the meantime, I met my husband. He's here tonight too, Conway. So I'm going to name drop you a little bit. And we had been dating for about three years. And again, it never occurred to me that I might have a problem with alcohol. I didn't use drugs. I will say that I was terrified of drugs. The like say no to drugs. This is your brain on drugs campaign worked very well for me. My parents always warned me about drugs. What would happen? I would be like Michael Danny. I would be like this. I would be like that. Michael Danny was really great, by the way. But there were, that was one thing that I was educated very clearly about. 
and was afraid to use them, but not alcohol. And I was sitting out front on the front porch of the restaurant that I work at. Well, our sister restaurant, they're connected. And I was having a glass of wine or four or five with one of my friend's coworkers. And she said that she wanted to go back to church. Well, I have been going to the Orchard Oxford since the very beginning, off and on. But at that time, I had not been to church in several years because whenever I'm in active addiction, there's a veil between me and God. I may want to talk to God. He may talk to me, but I'm not interested in listening to what he has to say. So there's always this disconnect. And it's very lonely feeling for me because as I told you, the Lord was my my very best friend and has been since I was a, a child. And But then there was this girl in need, and well, I have to help her. She wants to go to church, and I'm like, well, we can go to my church. And so it's Saturday night, and I have to Google where the orchard is now, because at that point, we were kind of moving around to several different funeral homes um, that we would take over and turn into a church. And we had moved into a new funeral home, and we went the next morning, and the song Pieces came on and the worship team was singing it and the words, they just hit me and I could feel God telling me that he saw me. I could feel that the Lord was saying, I see you where you are. I see where you've been. I won't remove my love from you. And there's nothing that you could do that would make me stop loving you. And also I heard the words, if you don't stop drinking, then Conway never will. And I was like, what does that mean? And then he said again to me, the only way that Conway will stop drinking is if you do. And I was like, what are you talking about? I don't have a problem with alcohol. And he was like, well, we're going to come back to that. But (laughs) this is the only way to save Conway's life. And at that time, it had become apparent that my husband also, we were not married yet, but he had issues with alcohol. I decided, okay, well, I'm going to give this a try. So I decided I would stop drinking, but I was going to reward myself on Saturdays. I would have a glass of wine, but for the first week I would just, you know, I think I initially said I'm going to go the whole time without drinking, but that seemed a little hard. Maybe I'll just ease into it. So it was Sunday. So I had like six days to go without drinking. Well, I don't know if any of you have ever tried to stop drinking before, but it's really difficult because alcohol is everywhere all the time. Uh, It's on all the TV shows that we watch. It's in every ad. It's in every magazine. And I had never noticed it before until then, the way that it's targeted towards us. But then I saw it all the time everywhere. And after the first couple of days, I made it and wasn't seeing alcohol 24-7 everywhere. And then by the time it got to that Saturday where I'm going to have this little wine reward at Snack Bar, I start drinking this glass of wine and it doesn't taste good to me anymore. And in fact, it made me feel sick immediately. And that was the first time that I knew that "Mm, maybe something is not quite right about this. Long story short, we go to our first 12-step meeting about a week or two later, and I walk into it. I'm very nervous. One of our, or two of our best friends take us, and I sit down, I start listening. And for the first time, I realize that all the things that I have kept to myself, that I've kept hidden, the crazy that I have going on all the time in my head, I was not alone in it. And other people had felt and experienced the same thing. And I was, my mind was blown and I felt like I had a new family. And so that became my first sobriety date or clean date, January 21st of 2016. 
Uh, there's a lot that I could cover about our recovery story, but I'm just going to kind of hit the highlights here so we can talk about breast cancer a little bit more because there's so many things that have happened that I want to share, but maybe at a later time. I was sober for about a year. Conway was sober for about six months at that time. And then it came about the time for our marriage. And that I had relapsed by that point, I think, but I hadn't told anyone. Conway knew. We were both hiding alcohol from each other. It was real healthy, let me tell you. (laughs) Super healthy. And both of our families, our pastor, friends, uh, I know they warned me, I don't know if they warned him, that maybe we shouldn't get married yet, that we had a couple of things to work out. But I knew that I was meant to marry him and that he was going to be okay and I was going to be okay. And I I just felt that the Lord was leading me into that and that there were going to be a lot of miracles to come from when Conway got sober, when I was actually sober and continued. And we got married and then a whole nother year passes before either one of us gets sober again. But it's this, this year of darkness because Conway was halfway in Florida. I was in Oxford. We didn't spend a lot of time together. And we were both not talking to each other about who was drinking and how much, and then not around each other. So we were anonymous to each other, to everyone else, because half the time people didn't know where I was, if I was in Florida, if I was in Oxford. And that's when the enemy gets up to a lot of no good. I got... For some reason, I felt like I was being called to stay in Oxford. A position came open not long after that for assistant manager at our restaurant group, our snack bar BBB. And I thought, well, maybe this is it. And they were interested in me for it. And I was like, okay, well, I'll do this. And I tell Conway, hey, I'm actually going to stay here. And um, I'm not moving to Florida in two weeks. Like I said, I'm going to start training for this. Bless his heart. He put up with a lot of stuff, didn't you, baby? And... I started training. I had about two, maybe three weeks of training as an um, assistant general manager. And then the current manager of Big Bad Breakfast put in their, their notice. And I was like, oh, no, because I had been uh, training at BBB specifically, but I was like, I don't like breakfast. I've been working at night. You can't get off from breakfast and drink. It's easier to get off from the night shift and drink. So I knew what was going to happen because I was the only person that was even like remotely qualified to take over that position. <laughs> Look at me being all humble here. <laughs> like no one else could take that job. But <laughs> in my mind, I knew that they would come to me, which they did. And they, uh, I can't remember if it was a, like an actual offer for the position. Didn't matter because I was like, well, I'll try it and I'll see if I'm okay at it. And then you know, maybe we'll go from there. I was like, but I can't start until June the 1st because I have to have the surgery on May 31st. Why? I thought that like one day of recovery was going to be fine for that. I don't know, but I did. And so I accept it. And May 30th, I drive down to Jackson to have this minor surgery done. And I couldn't drink anything because you, you know, you can't eat or drink before surgery. So you can't have anything after midnight. And I was like, well, if I start drinking now, there's definitely no way I'm going to stop after midnight. Um, and then the next day I had surgery, so I didn't feel good. So then I didn't eat or, 
or I, then I didn't drink any alcohol specifically. I think I maybe had some water. And the next day I started work. Well, something happened to me in those two days where everything changed. And I realized the position that I was taking on and I didn't want to let myself down and I didn't want to let everyone else down and I didn't want to be a failure anymore. And I had this constant feeling that I was failing. Even if no one saw it, I knew it. And for the first time, I made the decision for myself, not for Conway, not for my family, not for anyone else, that I was going to get clean and I was going to stay that way. And I did. And so May 30th became my new clean date. And I owe it all to BBB. And we say that BBB is our happy place. I say that. Someone stole it from me. And But it is. Because what happened was when we needed some... Uh, new hires because some people had left and we needed to fill those spots. Well, most of the people that I knew were in recovery. So it was like, well, so-and-so needs a job and they're very eager to work. So we hired a couple of people in recovery and then we hired a couple more. Well, as it turned out, we wound up with about, oh, I don't know, 10, maybe 12 of us at one time. And y'all, it's so cool. It's so neat because it's kind of like, well, it's it's also really annoying sometimes working with a bunch of addicts, I'll be honest. (laughs) But it's mostly rewarding and really great because someone's always watching your back and making sure that you're okay. Uh, Even when that annoys you, it's still good. But it's kind of like having a meeting every day, a 12-step meeting, and we're there for each other in different ways. And I tell you what, people that are in recovery, they want to work, they want to prove themselves, and they're really great employees. And I am been rewarded by that more than anything else um, that I've done in my life until recently. <laughs> I heard that my brother has told some people that I have a greater ministry than he ever will when he's, even though he's a pastor, he's never told me that. He told some other people, and that was a uh, a wonderful compliment. And there we are. There was my calling to the ministry the whole time. It was just being me in my healthiest way as a clean, sober individual trying to help other people, trying to help other addicts too, but mostly people. So I'm thinking I've got it all figured out. This is my ministry. This is my purpose. And I know what I'm doing. And the, everything is, is rolling along great for me. My husband's sober. I don't have to worry about him anymore. Everything is great. And then January of this year happened. And I was, um, I get these little patches of eczema, especially around my torso. And I was putting some hydrocortisone cream on one. It was under my left arm. And I lifted my left arm up to put the cream on, and then I did this, and I got some big boobs. So, like, there it was, and I felt this mass, and I was like, what is that? And it was large, like it was probably about two centimeters, and I knew that something was not right. It was not normal. I knew that it had not been there before because I had recently had a breast exam six months previously, And I thought I'd felt something before. I think it was on the opposite side, but I don't really remember. But like, I knew what they felt like. Um, I wasn't doing a self exam, like what is recommended, which by the way, ladies uh, and gentlemen, gentlemen's is at least once a month, know your anatomy so that you can know the changes when they happen. But I was, I was, you know, feeling myself up uh, probably every two or three months and 
I was like, do I tell my best friend now that I found this? So she makes sure that I don't freak out and don't call the doctor tomorrow because I have an issue with that. I like to avoid problems. And, or do, am I a big girl and I can do it by myself? Okay, I'm a big girl and I can do it by myself. Also, it was 10 o'clock at night and I didn't want to wake her up. That's really the only reason. So the next morning I call the doctor, my OBGYN, because also I, I didn't even know where you start when you find a mass on your on your breast. But that sounded like a good place. So I call my OBGYN and then I told one of the ladies that I work with, and then I called Meg down the street. I was like, can you come? I know this is gonna sound weird, but can you come down here and feel this, please? So, you know, I, I had a couple of ladies kind of feeling me up too, to see if they had had anything similar. And they had not, which made me a little bit more nervous. Well, then the OBGYN calls me. It was at the end of the day, probably maybe 4.30, sometime between 4.30 and 5. Uh, the nurse calls and is like, hey, so, you know, we see that you were here six months ago. So we've just scheduled you straight for a mammogram on Monday. And I was like, dun, dun. And I was like, oh, well, all right. Okay. Thank you. And I write down the time and I was so overwhelmed with anxiety and fear. And I just wanted to get out of there. And I never leave BBB before 5 PM ever. Like I'm normally there, what, until six, seven later. And I, all I wanted to do was go to my church, the Orchard Oxford. So I get in my car and I drive to the parking lot. And um, the moment that I drove into the parking lot, the fear and anxiety began to lift. And park, I turn some worship music on, I start listening, and then the Lord spoke to me. And he said, okay, this is going to be bad, but, and it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. And the other thing that he said was, it's going to save a lot of lives on the other end. And it's going to point a lot of people towards my goodness. And I believed him. There was one more thing that he said to me that at that time didn't make sense. But what he said was, this is just something else that you have to say yes to. And I was like, yes, what does that mean? How do I say yes to cancer? And I also like couldn't tell anybody, hey, the Lord told me that I have cancer because then I'm going to sound kind of crazy. But I, I walk into the mammogram on Monday knowing what I'm going to find and then it was confirmed for me very quickly by the concerned look on the technician's faces when they did the mammogram. And then they were like, well, we're going to keep you here for an ultrasound. And then they do the ultrasound. And like, I knew that that did not look good because I could see the ultrasound screen. And then they were like, oh, well, you know, sometimes when we see something like this, we are just, we schedule you for a biopsy. So let me see if they want to do that. And she was back in like 15 seconds. And I was like, so we're going to have a biopsy. And thankfully they, Everything was scheduled very quickly. Like I found the mass on a Thursday night, called the doctor Friday, mammogram and ultrasound Monday, biopsy was Wednesday, diagnosis by Friday. When they called me to tell me that I had cancer, uh, I was at work and I answered the phone. I'd gotten used to kind of recognizing what was a, you know, one of those bots calling me and what was a doctor's number. And I answered it, took it in the office, I had about five seconds to cry, and then I was like, have to get myself together, I'm at work. And so John Currents, who's our owner and is a fabulous boss, I 
he was there and I was like, I got to tell John. So I went out there and like, I was so shaky that I, I had to get down on my knee. Like he was sitting in a booth. I had to get down on my knees to tell him and was like, they just called and it's cancer. And then I said, and it, but it's going to be okay. <laughs> like, why am I saying that? And why am I trying to comfort him? But I don't know. That's just who I am. And I, maybe I was reassuring myself. Maybe the Lord was re- reassuring me through those words to him from myself. And things happened pretty quickly after that. I had to immerse myself in all the lingo about breast cancer and what does this mean and how, why did this happen? Everyone was calling. Everyone was messaging. I didn't know where to start or how to begin. I had to didn't know even which, know which doctor to see, like, because the surgeon said I needed to see them first. And the oncologist was like, no, you need to see us first. Still don't know the right answer for that because they still argue about it. Also pointed out some, some holes in the healthcare system and how it is not easy to navigate for patients. And patients really have to advocate for themselves, especially when it comes to breast cancer or cancer in general, I've found probably for everything, but this specifically I have experience with. There were a couple of prayers that I decided from the very beginning I would pray over this because I'm not very good at praying for myself. I never really know how to start there. And so I first one was that the Lord would use this to educate young women especially, but all men and women to their risk for breast cancer specifically, but everything. And that we would awaken to the things that we were doing, putting in our body, using, and what it could bring in the future. Or just what our plain old genetics can bring us. And the second one and the most important one to me was that people would not be angry with God for what happened to me. I really wanted this to point towards God's goodness. Also, he told me he wanted that to happen, so that was helpful too. But that's, I didn't, I wasn't angry about it. Now, again, I had fair warning. He told me I knew what it was going to be, but uh, I didn't know at that time how bad it was going to be, but I started praying these prayers over it. I was initially diagnosed as stage one, and that was January 29th of this year. And then my oncologist was like, well, we should probably order a PET scan just to make sure there's no lymph node involvement, which can mean maybe stage two. Well, we get a PET scan. My oncologist called me and I could tell that she was very upset by what the results were. She was like, okay, so things didn't turn out the way that we thought they were going to be. And we've got some changes. First change is you do have lymph node involvement. You have an axial node and a subpectoral node. Axials just, you know, adjacent to or under the arm, subpectorals under the pectoral muscle. And those are showing up clearly on the scans. But what's most concerning is that you have multiple lesions on your liver. I wasn't having any liver pain. I actually was not having any pain at all until the day of the PET scan or the day before. And I told my husband, I was like, I'm ready to have this scan because every ache and pain that I feel in my body, I think is another tumor. Well, it was. And as time went on between when I had the PET scan and when I saw the next doctor, which happened to be a specialist at MD Anderson in Houston, I began to have more pain. And all this time I'm going without treatment. So what it means to have 
the metastases or mets on my liver is that it takes it from stage one to stage four. Um, stage four is a terminal diagnosis and the average life expectancy for women with what is called metastatic breast cancer. And so metastatic means that it's moved from the original site to other organs in the body. Lymph nodes don't necessarily count because they, they are adjacent to the original cancer or tumor site. Um, but when it moves to another organ, you can assume that it's already in your bloodstream and it's already in your lymph system. So it's basically everywhere. It just hasn't grown or it's not showing up on scans yet. And that was a lot to swallow. And that was a lot to explain to everyone what it meant. And I still didn't understand what it meant. I've come to learn that the average life expectancy for a person with metastatic breast cancer is two to five years. There's only like a 22% survival rate past five years. And before the medicine that I'm on right now, which is called a CDK4-6 inhibitor, lots of, lots of words. I told you I was educated. No, <laughs> I did a lot of research. Before the advent or the um, approval of that to be sold and not just in trials, oh, don't cry, I'll cry. The average life expectancy for a person with liver metastases was like six months from diagnosis. I read that number and was like, what? And then my oncologist told me I wasn't allowed to, to read anything else <laughs> until I ran it by my friend who's a pharmacist and my other friend who's an FNP. And so I said that was a good deal. I, I wouldn't take anything to heart. But the medicine that I'm on typically gets you an extra two years of what we call survival. And some women, they live past five years. Some women, they live like seven, 10, 12, I think maybe is the longest. But in just a couple of days, really, you know, less than a month, my whole life changed from thinking about having a family. I've always wanted to adopt, but I've still thought I would have the option of having my own children. Not anymore. I've had to start anti-estrogen. Also, because my tumors are estrogen-fed, 95% uh, estrogen-fed, which means that 95 out of 100 cancer cells are fed by estrogen. Getting pregnant would likely kill me um, just because of the hormone fluctuations. Um, I cannot get pregnant. And now the medicines that I take um, are anti-estrogen, so I, I'm put into menopause. So everything's changed. Like I've gone from a normal, normal 36-year-old woman to a postmenopausal woman that is taking a chemo pill and estrogen shots. And I'm used to having a lot of energy and I don't have energy. I have to pull myself out of the bed most days. I'm in pain, but I had it. Or I like to say it's more of an inconvenience. It's not really like ouch, this is hurting me so bad. Sometimes it is. It's mostly just a nuisance and it's uncomfortable, like kind of like a gas pain maybe like, or a swimmer's cramp. That's the best way to describe it. But none of us really like those. Like they're not, we don't like to just hang out with them all day, every day. And that's how I feel most of the time. But that brings me back to what did the Lord tell me in my car at the Orchard Oxford that day? This is just something else that you have to say Yes, too. And I had learned from my past experiences in life that when the Lord tells me something and I'm obedient to it, He always delivers in more ways than I could ever imagine. And what He was telling me was, 
you're not saying yes to cancer because no one gets to say yes or no to cancer. We don't even have control of our own bodies. I don't know about y'all, but I have some control issues. I like to control everything and I don't understand why I can't, but I can't. I've had to release a lot of control. I have no control over the basic functions of my body anymore, over my health, nothing. But I can say yes to what I do with it. I can say yes to advocacy, to sharing my story, to telling other women that you need to ask about the birth control that you take. If you're drinking more than four drinks at one time, that's called binge drinking. If you're drinking several nights a week more than four drinks at a time, that's called heavy drinking. Binge drinking and heavy drinking puts you at a higher risk for breast cancer, all cancers, but specifically breast cancer. Smoking cigarettes at all. I was a closet smoker, a sometime everyday smoker, I think, or every other day smoker. Is that how it is on the medical forms now? I hated checking that, but I also hated lying. But, you know, any smoking at all puts you at a higher risk for breast cancer or a previous history of smoking. If you have a family history of breast cancer at all, period, you're at a higher risk for breast cancer. Me, I don't have any family history. My genetic testing came back clear. But I was on birth control long-term for more than 10 years. Now, all of us know that when um, you're on birth control for a certain amount of time, we're at a higher risk for what? Stroke? Yes. How many people have heard that? Probably everyone. Blood clot. We all know about that. Did your doctor ever tell you about breast cancer? No, I didn't. But it says it in the insert. We just don't talk about it. I don't know why it's not out there. I'm hoping that doctors are telling people that y'all have heard that before, but if you haven't, now you know, and you should tell other women. I, I can educate. That's what I can do with this. But I can also tell you how the Lord is good in this. I can tell you about how, because of my story, one of my best friends called me, and she has the BRCA mutation, and she's got like two other mutations that I can't remember the acronyms for. And she had been putting off getting her testing and having a double mastectomy like she was told she needed. But because of what happened to me, she called and she had another MRI and they found two masses. So then she had to have two biopsies and they didn't find cancer, but what they found was alarming. None of us know what that means, but now she's scheduled for a double mastectomy in June which she needed to probably have a couple of years ago, but at least she's having it now. And so when I talked to her the other day, I was like, how are you feeling? Are you nervous? And she was like, honestly, because I have your story to guide me through this. No, I feel relieved. Wow. It was worth it just for that. I'm going to cry. <laughs> just to know that like one other woman won't have to endure this, hopefully, and has caught this early. It's worth it. And I had to write this down because I always mix up the numbers, but there is a verse that I have always loved, but was always kind of afraid of because I didn't really know what it meant. And it's John fifteen thirteen. greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That was something that I'd always loved to do, love the idea of, but would I be able to do it when the time came? Now I can tell you that the answer is yes. And it is a very great love. It is a very fulfilling love to know that the Lord is using me in this way to help other women. Men too, they also have 
a high risk, well, not a high risk for breast cancer, but they can get breast cancer. But there's lots of other cancers out there that we need to know about. So all I can wrap up with is that prayer that I said when I was 13, here I am, Lord, send me. He answered it. And that's why I'm here. It's because I asked for it. And he's using it in ways that I hope and believe and know are blessing other people and pointing him towards his goodness. And that's all we need to remember in my story. That's it, y'all. One of the things that's so interesting to me is that last week with Sarah Faulkner and this week with Liz, they both have multiple stories within a story. And we don't often do that. But in both of their stories, they've experienced so much in a short amount of time of life. One of the things with Liz is the way she hears the Lord mm-hmm. is so mm-hmm. unique that it really loved listening how it went through all of her story. You know, it went from the addiction to the cancer diagnosis, really from her childhood. Mm-hmm. She's always heard the mm-hmm. Lord so clearly, no matter what she was walking through. I know I, I loved at the end how she tied in what God spoke to her at the age of 13. Here I am, Lord, send me. That God revealed that to her yet again as she's walking through this diagnosis. And I loved also how she said, you know, I say yes to God. You know, yes, if, if you're telling me to do something, I'm saying yes in those hard moments. And um, that that just really spoke to me a lot. Yeah, because she said, when the Lord tells me to do something and I'm obedient, yes. Yes. that caught me. Because yes. I was like, right. oh, yes. is that, is that key phrase, <laughs> obedience, that, that's so important. And I was really challenged by the fact that that after her cancer diagnosis, that she kind of identified, all right, here are my prayers. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's here's how I feel called to make a difference through right. this. That that was encouraging. I know. And, you know, when she referenced the verse from John 15, I've never heard somebody I use know. that as their life yes. verse. But gosh, what an amazing twist of, of hearing those words that Jesus spoke to his disciples talking about the crucifixion that he was about to experience and how she tied that into, you know, Lord, if you're calling me to give up my life so that somebody else Else will experience you in a new way. I'm saying yes. Here I am. Send me. After walking through all of her addiction, uh, the, the addiction part was so interesting because she, when she went into the hospital and the therapist told her that you could be depressed because you're angry. Yes, yes that was another one. Oh, wow. Because we as wow. women do hide our anger. Oh, for sure. I mean, if, yes. if, if you're angry and you express that, you're labeled crazy. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Yes. And so we just hope that from today's story, from hearing Liz and all that she's walked through and is continuing to walk through, that the Lord just really challenges your heart to live each day to the fullest. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's what I walked away with is she knows that she has limited time left, barring a miraculous healing, which we absolutely pray for. Absolutely. Um, and our Tupelo team actually shared with us that she's working on her bucket list. She just got back from New York, um, which she had always wanted to visit. And so uh, I love the fact that she is doing just what you're saying. Yes. And so I just want to challenge each of us, myself included, to, to see where the Lord's speaking to you today. And to live every day of life. We just don't ever know what's around the corner. And so we thank you for listening today. The rest of this summer for six weeks, we're going to do listener favorites. So if you are online and voted, be looking for your favorite story to come along this summer. And we will be back in August. And one thing that we wanted to talk about is that Liz 
is from Tupelo. And actually, there is a church called The Orchard in Tupelo, which is going to have a Storytellers Live conference in August. That's right. We're doing a Your Story Matters retreat on August the 21st. And you can go to theorchard.net slash events and get more information. We would love to see your face there and get a chance to meet you. So have a great summer and we will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.